Back in the 1950s, um, one social scientist, social psychologist, uh, a guy called Solomon Ash, his picture will be on the screen here, uh, he conducted a whole series of uh, student experiments uh, because he was wanting to investigate, explore uh, the effect uh, that peer pressure had on young people in particular. Um, and so what he did is he invited um, these groups of 10 young people uh, to come along and it was advertised really as uh, an eyesight experiment. Uh, so each group of 10 would come into a room uh, and the, researcher, so the researchers would explain uh, the instructions. They were going to see 18 cards, but like the card uh, on the screen there, 18 cards. And on the card, each card were three different lines, A, B and C. Uh, and the instructions weren't as follows. The lines will be of varying lengths. Uh, we will point to each line in turn and we'd be grateful if you would simply raise your hand when we point to the line you think is the longest, okay? Very, very simple. Uh, the twist was that actually nine of the ten people in the room secretly got additional instructions. Uh, they were told after six cards are shown, we want all of you, all nine of you, to raise your hand and vote for the second longest line. And we want to see what effect that has on the real test subject in the room. Okay? Uh, one, one poor soul. I feel sorry for the, the, the poor candidate uh, who was the test subject. Uh, he described his experience uh, a little later. I was reading it this week. Uh, he described his experience as, you know, after when card number seven is shown, where clearly line, number, line marked C is the longest by some distance, uh, and the researchers are pointing to A, B, nine hands shoot up in the air. Uh, and he said this, uh, I thought perhaps I had misheard the instructions. Uh, I had better do the same as everyone else because I was afraid that they would laugh at me. There you go. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. This, this actually is quite a famous experiment. It's been repeated down through the years, right across the world in almost every country in the world. And the results are almost always the same. 70, at least 75% of people who are uh, tested are shown to be susceptible to peer pressure, the power of peer pressure. And 75%, three out of four people, would rather say a short line is long than be the one who stands out in a crowd. And that means that three out of four of us in this room are susceptible to that kind of peer pressure. We do not like standing out. We don't like the idea that we would be different or odd or weird in any way. And so there's an enormous pressure in our culture and in our, in our own personality to, to fit in. Well, uh, that, with that said, when you come then to this passage where Paul is speaking now to a local church and he gives some instructions to a local church that are exactly the opposite. We as a local church, the church in Ephesus, and we as Strandtown Baptist Church today, we are not to be, Paul says, we are not to be spiritual chameleons that just blend in with the background, that fit in with the culture, that camouflage ourselves 
uh, so that we're hiding from any spiritual predators out there who might uh, hurt us or ridicule us uh, in any way. No, Paul says precisely the opposite. Last week we were introduced to the idea, chapter 4, verse 17. Paul said, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And then Paul says it twice in our passage uh, this morning, in verse 7, therefore do not be partners with them. And in verse 11, do not participate in the fruitless deeds of darkness. We are to be different. We are to be distinct uh, as Christians. We are to stand out. Uh, As a friend of mine talks about it, we're to stand out like healthy thumbs in a whole society of sore thumbs. Okay, That's how we are to be. We're to stand out uh, like healthy thumbs in a society of sore thumbs. But before we dive into the detail, what does difference look like? Um, It's worth noting a little disclaimer, a little warning. Uh, I came across uh, this book uh, by John Leonard called Get Real. And in it he says this, because not all difference is good difference. Not all difference is gospel difference. Uh, He says this, there are some Christians that make you feel uncomfortable just by being around them. They lack any social graces, don't know how to dress, Uh, don't know how to act around others. They believe people are avoiding them because they're Christians. But people don't even know that they're Christians. People avoid them because they are weird. Okay? So there is not all difference is good difference. Not all difference is good difference. Um, We must not be weird. The only difference that we should have um, is the difference that the Lord Jesus calls us to have. It's only faithfulness to him that should mark us out as different. And what then does that look like? Well, in this passage, it looks like two things, two things. Um, The first one's by far the longest, so don't panic uh, as we go through. Uh, The first one then is watch out for impurity for the sake of your own soul. Watch out for impurity for the sake of your own soul. And then secondly, walk in the light for the sake of the world. Okay, those are the two differences that we're to have. First, we're to watch out for impurity for the sake of your own soul. What do you think should be the the biggest difference? How should we stand out from the surrounding culture? If I was to ask you that question, uh, I'm sure I'd get a variety of answers. I think there's all sorts of things that people might say, that Christians might say. I think some of us would say, well, we want to be different in our attitude to to money. That's true. We want to be different in our ambition for social justice. I think that's right. Uh, We want to be different um, in our attitude towards other people and to be willing to to give time, energy, and talent to to give to, to others around us to show acts of kindness. I think that's true. Uh, But notice what what does Paul go for immediately? What does Paul go for? What is the the top thing that he thinks that should mark us out as as different as night is from day to the society around us? Well, Paul says, verse 3, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. According to Paul then, the thing that should most mark us out from the surrounding culture 
that should mark Christians out in the surrounding culture from the surrounding culture in the first century, and increasingly marks us out as very different from our culture in the 21st century, is our attitude to sex. Is our attitude to sex. Paul is not prudish in any way. Um, now, I feel I need to say here, as a disclaimer, if you are here this morning and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus yet, you're here and you're exploring things, you're maybe even here under duress, uh, can I just say... I do not expect you to live the life that Paul describes here. I do not even expect you to want to live the lifestyle that Paul uh, describes here. However, what I want you, what I hope, what I pray for you this morning, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, is I hope that as you listen into this in-house discussion, this is clearly a discussion for how Christians, how we as believers should live. I hope that you understand the logic of the Christian position and that you even catch a glimpse of how that might be attractive. That's my ambition for you. Um, For the rest of us, however, we need to listen very carefully to what Paul is saying here. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. The phrase sexual immorality, two words in English, is actually one word in Greek. Uh, It's the word porneia, uh, from which we get the English word uh, pornography. And it's a very comprehensive term in in the New Testament uh, and in Greek. And all the commentators tell us that this word porneia includes all... uh, illicit sexual activity outside marriage between one man and one woman. Now that is an extraordinarily controversial statement actually today, Um, increasingly so. But that's what Paul means when he uses this this word porneia, sexual immorality. Uh, And then Paul then adds another phrase, another word in the original, uh, the word any kind of impurity, that's how it's translated, um, which doesn't give us a whole lot of wiggle room, actually, when it comes to sexual ethics. Um, What does Paul mean? Paul completely rules out men having sex with women who are not married, men having sex with other men, men having sex with women who are married to someone else or they're married to someone else. Paul completely rules out uh, women having sex with men who are not married, women having sex with women, women having sex with uh, men who are not married or who are married but not to them uh, or they're married to someone while they're married to someone else. Paul completely rules out anyone having sex with children, unconsenting adults, or animals. Notice Paul is even stronger. Paul is not just referring to what we do with our bodies, uh, how we act, and what activities we're involved in. Paul also has in mind what we think about, our fantasies, what we're watching, what we're fantasizing in our minds about. Paul even adds, verse 4, Uh, what we speak about, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, uh, which are out of place. 
Paul is saying there should be no sexually explicit conversations, no smutty joking, no vulgar speech. Paul is promoting an attitude that is radically, radically different from the culture in which uh, the first Ephesians would have lived in. Uh, In the first century, uh, Ephesus was the, the home of the temple of Artemis, Uh, Artemis by the Greeks, Diana by the Romans, a goddess. Uh, She was a fertility goddess. And you literally worshipped Artemis by having sex. And so the, the Ephesians who would have seen Christians being sexually restrained in this way, they would have regarded them as being crazy. Crazy. Dangerously repressed. Of course, not only, as I said, were the Ephesians, uh, the first century Christians, shockingly standing out in their culture. That that is increasingly the case for us. Um, If you are someone who believes that you should remain a virgin until you get married today, according to the latest statistics, you are in 1% of the population. You're regarded as crazy, dangerously repressed. This is a very contemporary phrase. Um, Why, and here's the big question, here's the big question. Why does God care who you or I sleep with? Why does God care who you or I sleep with? Has he not got more important things to worry about than that? Surely if two people love each other, what's the harm? Well, I need to say say two things really quickly. Um, This will, by the way, I'm embracing failure here. This is not going to be a comprehensive defense of the the Christian sexual ethic. I don't have time to do that. I just have time to to say two things briefly. The first thing I want to say is that everybody cares who you sleep with. Everybody cares. Every single person that you bump into has very strong views of who you should sleep with and who you shouldn't. And why should God be any different? That means that if you come across someone and they would regard themselves as very, very liberal and permissive sexually, nevertheless, we as a culture have actually, in a post-Me Too world, in a post-Jimmy Savile world, we have stronger, firmer views on sexual ethics than perhaps ever before. Um, I think it's fair to say that everyone, Christian, non-Christian, would regard rape, incest, pedophilia as being absolutely wrong. And so do you see the big difference? The big difference is, is not that we're, as Christians, drawing lines with sexual ethics and saying some things are wrong and some things are, are okay and permissible. Everybody draws lines. Everybody draws lines. The big question is, where do you draw the line and why? God cares uh, who you're sleeping with because everybody cares who you're sleeping with and why should God be any different? But the second reason, the reason that's given in this passage, um, which is quite important, I think, just for us to just slow down and think about for a moment, 
is notice as when Paul lists these two things twice, in verses 3 and verse 5, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, he links it to a third thing each time. He links it to the idea of greed. Greed. According to Paul, you see, what drives sexual immorality, the attitude behind it, is the attitude of greed. Greed. What is greed? Greed is indulging your own desires for your own pleasure. That's what greed is. Indulging your desires for your own pleasure. And Paul is saying when greed drives sex, it becomes all about me and getting my gratification and about what I am getting out of it. When greed drives sex, it becomes something ugly, it becomes something dehumanizing, it becomes something degrading, damaging. Um, Sex becomes just a means for me to get what I want and I need, rather than an end. Sorry, people are treated as a means of getting what I want, rather than an end in themselves. Sex is about recreation, about biological release, and not about a relationship of love and it's devoid often of, of commitment and care. And that is, according to the Bible, that is something deeply ugly. Something deeply ugly. And actually, we catch a glimpse of that in culture, don't we, as well, if, you, if your eyes are open to it. I came across this, uh, this little paragraph in, not that I'm a regular reader of Cosmopolitan, I have to say, to be honest, but, uh, but I came across this paragraph nonetheless in, in an editorial back in 2005, um, where the editor wrote this, I think this is remarkably honest. Uh, There have been some misguided assumptions linked to the sexual revolution. And one is that sex can be both casual and happy. In human beings, sex is linked to an emotional bond. And without that, it is at best unsatisfactory and at worst humiliating and degrading. I think that's exactly right. I think Paul would completely agree with that sentiment. When sex is merely about me and getting my pleasure rather than developing and deepening a personal relationship, it becomes dehumanizing, degrading, and damaging. Um, It's the attitude that says, I want to be one with you physically, whole body commitment, But I don't want whole life commitment. I don't want to be one with you legally, economically, socially, or perhaps even emotionally. And what you're actually doing is you're ripping apart. It's it's a, a violent thing. You're actually ripping apart your emotions and your body. Your the spirit and the physical are being torn apart. And Paul would say, "Why does God care who you're sleeping with? Because God cares for you." God cares for you. He wants you to flourish and not to be damaged. Just previously, uh, back in verses five, for verse, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul wrote these words, for God's, uh, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God wants our lives to be marked in every area by an attitude of love. Sexual immorality is the opposite of that. It's the opposite. It's 
greedy, self-centered, self-oriented activity. And because of that, because God wants you to flourish and wants your life to be marked by love in every area, then the best context for sex, the safe place for sex, is inside the safety and security of a loving marriage relationship. The best context is in a a setting where two people have made vows to cherish, to love and care for each other, forsaking all others till death do we part. And we we are going to share not only whole body commitment, but whole life commitment as well. And the two things go together like a hand and glove. God is for sex. But sex is for marriage, as that is the context where romance, sacrificial love, and deep friendship can truly thrive. God wants us to watch out for impurity. Why? Well, here we come on to the the reason. God wants us to come on. uh, um, God wants us to be committed to sexual purity for the sake of your own soul. For the sake of your own soul. Verse 5. for, uh, for of this you can be sure, no uh, immoral, sexually immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that if you slip up in this area, then you are forfeiting heaven. Um, it is worth remembering, it's worth remembering that we are all, every single person in this room, we are all sexual sinners. We have all failed in thought, word, or deed. We've all failed. Um, that's why it's important just to, just to note that Paul mentions thanksgiving at the end of verse 4. Uh, when your conscience is pricking you, Uh, and you're aware, oh, I have failed in this area. Paul wants you to remember what's already come in the book, as Robbie pointed out a little little bit earlier. He wants you to remember that you're loved by the Father, and you've been adopted into his family. You've been forgiven by the Son who died on the cross for your sexual sin too, and you've been given the Holy Spirit to bring healing and transformation in your life. You should be thankful. Be thankful. This is not the unforgivable sin in any way. But nevertheless, Paul does finish with this warning. Uh, He finishes with the warning. Because if it is your settled position that a permissive attitude to sex is totally fine for me, then Paul would say, Actually, that may indicate that you haven't yet really understood the good news about Jesus yet. You see, it's impossible to say, look, look, I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but I'm now going to continue to live in a way that is totally abhorrent to him. That would show you didn't understand, didn't know him yet properly. And so that's a warning If you are living a self-indulgent, sexually permissive lifestyle and are totally okay with that, then you need to hear this warning. For six, let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of such things, God's wrath is coming on those who are disobedient. If there's anyone that says otherwise, actually you can be, we've moved on from all this old, old-fashioned Victorian stuff of the New Testament. You can live whatever way you want, express yourself sexually whatever way you want. Whether that person, whether the person who says that is wearing a dog collar uh, or has a professorship or has a million followers uh, on Instagram or Twitter, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God says it does God says these things are crucial. Hear the warning. Watch out for impurity for the sake of your own soul. That's what Paul says. And Paul's, um, notice all this comes in the section of the church. The church, all the yous here are plural. We are to help one another in this area. Perhaps there's someone you need to chat to today. There's a struggle you have whether it's with pornography or a relationship that's blossoming in a way that it shouldn't, talk to someone. Let someone pray for you, listen to their counsel. Uh, We can help each other in this area. Watch out for impurity for the sake of your soul. Lastly and very briefly, walk in the light for the sake of the world. Walk in the light for the sake of the world. Verses 8 through to 14. Um, Paul has been warning us what not to do uh, in, verse, uh, in those first verses. Uh, now he, he changes and he tells us what we should do. We should be those who walk in the light. Darkness is a picture, a very common picture actually in the Bible, uh, that expresses the idea of ignorance and evil. Well, we are to be people of the light. We're people in the know. We know God. We know his gracious work for us in Jesus. Uh, we've got to know him personally. Um, And he is changing us. As we get to know him, we will increasingly want to be people. We will increasingly want to be people who are committed to goodness, goodness, righteousness, and truth. How does that work? How does that work? Uh, I don't mean to embarrass them, but we've mentioned them already. Let's take Robbie and Kate just for a moment. Uh, I didn't didn't ask permission for this, so I'm sorry. Um, But um, let's imagine uh, Kate is uh, a massive country music fan. I have no idea. But imagine she's a massive country music fan, uh, and Robbie knows that, and her birthday's coming up, but he buys her instead his his favorite latest album from that thrash metal band, okay, and gives it to her. That that would not be a loving thing to do. That would not be loving. Let's imagine for a moment Kate's a vegetarian and one evening Robbie decides to cook for her but he cooks instead of a vegetarian meal he cooks a a blue steak for her. That that would not be loving. You see, if if you are loved by someone and love someone then the natural blossoming of that relationship is that you'll want to know what pleases them and do that. That's how it works. That's how relationships work. And it's the same in our relationship with the Lord. As we get to know him better, we will want to please him. Verse 10. We want to know what pleases the Lord. Because we're loved by him and we love him. And as you uh, explore the life of Jesus and you listen to his teaching and you see his actions as described by the eyewitnesses in in the gospel writings, you see a man of incredible goodness. 
a man of absolute righteousness and consistency, uh, a man of compassion and care and love. And as you get to know him better, you know that those things will please him. Doing what is right, even when it's costly. Doing what is good for others rather than just what's good for you. Laying aside your time and your energy and your talent to serve those in need. You know, as you get to know Jesus, that those are the things that please him. And increasingly you'll want to do them. And so Paul continues, verse 11, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. Now please don't misunderstand Paul. He's not saying that we should all go into the tabloid business, right? Of trying to find out uh, and uh, investigate uh, and publish what uh, the wrongdoing of politicians or celebrities and exposing all their lies and wrongdoing. No, we're not called to do that. No, not at all. Instead, we are called to live lives in the light. To live a life that pleases God. And as you do so, your life will inevitably expose the lies and the wrongdoing around you. Uh, Let's go on to the next slide. Some of you may remember this. Okay, anyone? The Daz, I'm sure my age here, the Daz doorstep challenge. There's a few. A few decades ago, Danny Baker would come along. Uh, it was all a bit staged, of course, but Danny Baker would come along and knock the door. Uh, and the wife would come and he would say, you know, let's, let's compare your whites to Daz white. And this poor woman would come along and bring her, you know, slightly grey baggy oil t-shirt and compare it to clearly the, the t-shirt that's just out of the packet. It's brand new. It's never been worn. Uh, and the contrast, Daz white, you're white. You see, the housewife's white was exposed just by putting it beside the Daz white t-shirt. That's how we are called to expose the darkness, by living in the light. A good friend of mine, Johnny, who's a pastor uh, in uh, the south of England at the minute, his wife, he he tells the story of how his wife, Laura, became a Christian. She grew up in a non-Christian home uh, where her parents were quite committed atheists. And they send her off to university with a few warnings. Watch out for, watch out for drink, watch out for drugs, watch out for dangerous men. And then they added a fourth thing, and also watch out for Christians. Okay, watch out for Christians. I think they were scared she'd be swept up in some cult somewhere. Uh, but she headed off to university, and can I say she took their advice. She took their advice. She did watch out for Christians. Because in her student halls, in her corridor, were actually, in God's design, there was a couple of Christians who also had rooms on her corridor. And they shared a kitchen. And she watched how they, how they worked diligently at their studies. She watched how carefully and positively they spoke to one another. She watched and she saw that they didn't sleep around. And she watched and saw how they cared for one another. And she was intrigued and attracted. She made friends with them, started going along to the CU, heard the gospel, wonderfully converted. I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. 
For it is the light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As we live in the light, it becomes intriguing and attractive to others, and they are drawn to the light of the Lord Jesus and experience new life and a new start. That's what's at stake. As we live in the light, we do so not just for ourselves. It's good for us, of course. It pleases the Lord. But we do it as well for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world. So that others might see and be attracted. What is it that makes the gospel beautiful and believable? What is it that makes the gospel beautiful and believable? It's the way we live. It's the way we live. That's the first step for so many people. As we live lives marked by goodness, righteousness, and truth, as we endeavor to please the Lord who loves us, we will expose the darkness and attract others to the light. So what are we to do? How are we to live distinctive lives, lives that stand out uh, in a a dark world? Well, we're to watch out for impurity for the sake of our soul, and we are to walk in the light for the sake of the world. Let me pray for us.